Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf, and thanks for joining me. With me today is debut novelist Ferret Steinmetz, author of the urban fantasy Flex, which came out from Angry Robot Books in March. But to focus on the word debut gives the wrong impression. While Ferret is a debut novelist, he's not a debut writer. He's been writing short stories for many years, and his novelette, Sauerkraut Station, earned him a Nebula nomination in 2011. He's also a very busy blogger on his own website and at the Good Men Project. So, Ferret, welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. Hey, glad to be here. Well, before we talk about Flex, I thought... I'd like to talk a little bit about your journey as a writer. I noticed on Goodreads, your bio starts, After 20 years of wandering desolate as a writer, Ferret Steinmetz attended the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop in 2008 and was rejuvenated. So were you really desolate? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I had, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer since I was like 15. Uh, and it occurred to me when, you know, it's like, hey, those books on the shelves were written by human beings. Um, and then I proceeded to write for like literally 25 years. I'm 45 now. It just came out. And, uh, you know, basically I wrote for a good 25 years, really not making much traction before I finally figured out how to do it. And uh, the Clarion Writers Workshop and to a certain extent Viable Paradise uh, both finally got my butt in gear and taught me what I was doing wrong. And how did they do that? What are what are some of the highlights of what you learned? Well, the thing is, I'm inherently lazy. <laughs> I don't really like doing all that much work. And when I would write stuff, the, the biggest thing that Clarion taught me is, and if you're not familiar with the Clarion process, um, basically it's a six-week writer boot camp. You go with 17 other writers, and they have rotating teachers who come in once a week. Uh, generally, they're well-known people in the field. Uh, the year I went, it had, among other people, Kelly Link and Nalo Hopkinson and, most notably, Neil Gaiman. Um, wow. And Yeah, and it, it's always a pretty hefty lineup of clearing. Like, you're guaranteed to have heard of them. And basically what it taught me is, for 25 years, I was shooting too low. And Which is to say that when you write a story, I thought I was writing very good stuff. Um, and I was, you know, I was writing perfectly acceptable stuff. The problem is there's 2000 other people in the slush pile and I was taking all sorts of shortcuts where I'm like, eh, that's okay. I guess nobody will notice or care. And the truth is when you were writing something and particularly writing any kind of short story, which is even more competitive in some ways than a novel, you need to not just write a good story. You need to write a story that is going to knock Neil Gaiman on his butt. Um, because you need to be so much better than everybody else in the pile that you cannot afford to relax on any one aspect of it. So what Clarion did is I'd go in with my stories and 17 people would critique it and they'd be like, no, I caught this thing you were trying to slide by on. I caught this thing that you were lazy on. You weren't really plotting well. You weren't really going with your characters well. And bit by bit, they kind of stripped away my illusions and showed me how lazy I'd been and how much more effort I had to put in to make my stories top-notch. 
Wow. And do you continue now with any kind of uh, writing group of, of some kind where you continue to get that kind of critique? I do. Um, actually, I have the Cajun Sushi Hamsters in Cleveland. Uh, yes, it's a weird name. <laughs> so uh, Technically, it's the Cajun Sushi Hamsters from hell. So, Ooh, does yeah. that mean you write about those are the, 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 those are the topics you cover, the uh, small rodents and um, hell and spicy food? Well, I tend to think that I am the the small rodent, um, being ferret. But um, but yeah, we've seen some pretty weird stories covered, but not one that's covered all of that. Uh, nobody's really quite sure where the name came from, to be honest, but it's stuck. Um, and the other thing is I have several uh, friends from the Clarion and the Viable Paradise Writers Workshop who look over my stories now for me. So it's kind of an online writers group. But yeah, there are some people who can write out brilliant stuff and never run it by another person. Uh, the biggest thing that I learned in Clarion is I thought I was like a one and a half draft person. And realistically, I need to probably get five drafts in before the story starts to get good. And did you take time? I mean, I don't know, were you working full time then? You took time off to do the workshop or it just fit, fit into your schedule? Uh, yeah, I took, uh, I took a six week leave of absence to do it. The one thing about Clarion is it's expensive to get into and it does take a lot of time. If you're looking for a similar experience, I'd mentioned Viable Paradise, which I did the next year. Viable Paradise is only a week out, um, and it's a much more condensed version of Clarion, and it's really helpful if you don't have six weeks and six weeks of time to pay for to get away from. So, Very good. And so it must have felt wonderful to see that uh, pay off in getting your short stories published and eventually uh, getting Flex uh, published. Yeah, and the one thing I'm sort of infamous for is when – uh, I finally got accepted, and I was able to uh, announce that. And the one thing they'd never tell you if you if you really want to be a writer is that you have to sit on good news for so long because the contracts have to get signed. So you, you just sit there and go, I sold a novel, but I can't tell anybody, and I'm dying. Uh, but when I finally did announce it, I uh, made a, specifically made a list of the seven failed novels I had written before before I finally caught fire with Flex. And so you did, in fact, uh, you have seven um, novels in a drawer somewhere? Yep, yep, and they should probably stay there. There's one I'm still trying to sell at this point, um, but the other six were just not very good novels that, uh, you know, I, I finally realized that, uh, wow, here's how you write a novel well. And if you you want to know the secret, yeah, I gave up all hope of writing anything commercial, and I wrote a novel that was purely all in-jokes and stuff I liked, and of course that's what sold Oh, interesting. So kind of let go of that that particular kind of ambition and uh, write for yourself. Yeah, because the number one question I get asked about Flex is, um, how come you talk so much about donuts in Flex? And the answer is because I really like donuts. <laughs> it just There's long tangents about donuts and how donuts affect your psychology in this novel, and that seemed weird, but I liked it, and people seem to have been drawn to it, so go figure. Well, and they say, write what you know, so... If you know donuts. Yeah, if you've seen uh, pictures of me, I'm kind of a chubby, overweight guy. I clearly know donuts. All too well. Let's talk about Flex. I mean, maybe maybe you can start off just by telling listeners a bit about the story to, to get them into it, to whet their appetites. Okay, um, there's really two hooks for Flex, if you will, that I use when I'm trying to sell it to people. Um, the strict answer... Uh, that is on the back of the book is it's um, Breaking Bad uh, meets Jim Butcher's The Dresden Files or Breaking Bad meets Scott Pilgrim. Um, but the, the general hook is that a father's daughter gets burned 
uh, very badly in an accident, and he has to start learning how to make magical drugs in order to save her life. Um, the real pitch that you get on that, though, because the father is a very strong storyline, but what people seem to pay attention to the most is the magic system, uh, which is based around obsession, where basically anybody can be a wizard, but essentially you don't mean to become a wizard. It's just if you're a crazy cat lady and you hoarded like 500 cats in your house, there's a good chance that eventually you will kind of fall through the moral event horizon and start doing crazy cat magic. Right. But by that point, you'll be completely bull goose loony and not really fit to be part of normal society. And that's a that's a, a felimancer? Felimancer, yeah. Felimancer, right. And you've got muscle mancers and illustromancers for people who take art and can find magic in the in the art and the drawings and collectomancers. I mean, it's great. And your your protagonist is a, I'm going to say it wrong, a bureaucromancer. Bureaucromancer. Bureaucrom, of course, that's it. Bureaucracy, bureaucromancer. Thank you. Yeah, he's he's basically turned the DMV into an art. Uh, he Paul is the character of the lead character of the book, and basically he believes very strongly um, that paperwork is what actually keeps people honest. Uh, he really believes that you know corporations and presidents and everybody else would just screw over the common man if it wasn't for these paperwork trails and you know these court orders keeping them in line. And he's sort of become obsessed with that, so he could do all sorts of. Very subtle, but not particularly helpful magic in a lot of cases. And you want to give some examples of that? Yeah. I mean, basically, um, you know, he's kind of useless in a firefight because obviously bureaucracy is kind of slow to, to enact. But, you know, at several points in the novel, he can basically send a SWAT team crashing through your door by dropping a magically completed uh, warrant for your arrest on a cop's desk. Uh, he, at one point, he just sort of shows up at an apartment and he backdates it so it turns out that there's a lease ready and waiting for him and he just owns it when he gets there. Um, there's a lot of very subtle things he does in the book in terms of uh, actually restoring order to things because he has learned how to... Um, he's learned to juggle the system in ways that actually uh, affect the way that corporations and uh, laws work. And and isn't there a... There's a price to be paid, though, for the, for the use of, um, of using this kind of magic... Yeah, uh, there's a process called the flux. Um, as it turns out, the universe has put a lot of thought into its laws of physics. Uh, it kind of thinks of them as artisan, artisanal laws of physics. It's handcrafted, very carefully done. And when you break it, the universe gets very pissed at you. And basically, uh, whenever you do magic, you can do phenomenal things, but then it rains Final Destination-style bad luck coincidences around your head, which are often fatal until, you know, basically the odds are evened out. We're back to normal uh, normal physics again. So it's kind of like a reverse karma, I guess. I mean, usually in karma, bad begets bad and good begets good. But this is sort of like too much good begets bad. Yeah, because I, I wanted to have something where I really hate novels where magic is just this sort of thing where you're a magician, so you can do all of this stuff without any kind of cost. I It was very important to me to have a magic system where... Yes, you could do all of these things, but if you could somehow do stuff without magic, it made more sense, you know, um, because, you know, frequently what I see is, you know, it's like, oh, well, I'm a magician. I'll just raise an army of the dead and make my castle out of magic. And then where is any challenge in that for your characters? Where do they have any sort of stopping points to what they can do aside from what you're arbitrarily done? Um, so with the magic system that I have in uh, Flex, uh, one of the things that 
Paul is trying to do is he could save his daughter with the power of paperwork. He could get her into the best of hospitals. He could get her into the best of, uh, you know, doctors. But the flux isn't an impersonal set of things. It hits you in all the things. It takes away all the things you love the most. So if he were to use magic to heal his daughter directly, there would be a good chance that until he learns how to control the flux, it would just backlash and hurt her even worse. So there's a very big tension throughout the book about um, should any of these mancers use their magic? And there's an even more tension because, as mentioned, um, the mancers in the book, they don't even know sometimes they're doing magic because they're just so obsessed. They just start doing magic spontaneously, and then they get zapped by their own flux. Interesting. And I'm curious about there's references to Europe having been laid waste by an overuse of, of flex. And I wonder if there's a reason why you brought Europe so low. Um, well, uh, here, here's a fun fact. Um, if you accidentally, or I should say purposefully, uh, annihilate an entire continent just to prove a point in one of your books, you're going to get tetchy emails from all of your European friends going, hey, why'd you blow up my hometown? <laughs> That's a good point. Do you, do you in in translation? If it has been translated, are you are you changing the continent? That was uh, if it if it goes, you know, to France or is it um, South America that that gets uh, zapped by flux? Oh, I didn't even think about that. Um, they're they're currently trying to sell it to Europe. Maybe uh, maybe that's why it won't sell. I don't know. I have a writer friend who told me, "Don't ever put down Texas." You know, maybe in a conversation, someone's you know smearing Texas, and she goes, "Your book won't sell in Texas, and you don't want that to happen. So don't do that." Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Uh, apparently, then uh, destroying Europe may be ma- bad marketing, but <laughs> no, hopefully not. Hopefully, they'll if they should be able to take a joke. Oh, we'll see. But but the the one thing that happened is basically it, there is not a whole lot gone into the book about what happened in Europe. But in World War Two, they tried to you know World War Two was kind of the equivalent of the Civil War. It was the first Civil War was the first war where they really utilized technology. Uh, and warfare in a big way where they had the industrial line guns and just killed millions, hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people, I should say. And in the world of Flex, uh, World War II is the first one where they tried to indoctrinate uh, mancers to do wide-scale magic, and they accidentally blew a hole through to another dimension and horrible, horrible things poured through. Um, which explains, again, why uh, another challenge for our poor, beleaguered hero, Paul, uh, not only is doing his magic incredibly dangerous, it's also completely illegal. Because if you know how to do magic, you are automatically a terrorist and they want to abduct you and take you to be uh, basically brainwashed and reindoctrinated into a uh, government-friendly mancer squad. It sort of reminds me of someone with like a um, Snowden uh, skill, you know, having a great skill with computers and then being used to, you know, which one can consider very powerful in the hands of the populace, like the internet, free communication, but then you could turn it around and spy on everyone too. You can use that same power in a different direction. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of that in here because, I mean, basically one of the, the themes of the book is that, you know, basically people fear magic to a large extent, but can also do really wonderful things. But part of the problem is you know, the minute you can do magic, you're automatically turned in and on the run. And so you have a lot of terrified mancers who don't know how to control their powers, who don't want to be arrested. And if there might be training for these sort of things, then things could go better. But it's just sort of chaos because everybody fears magic. And do you feel that does that parallel anything in our world today? I mean, were you I mean, is this is this a book entirely of um, 
you know, fun ideas that you were exploring? Or do you see it connecting to something, a commentary, in other words, not necessarily, you know, trying to hit people over the head with it, but something in your mind that you were also commenting on? Oh, the thing is, I am what's called a gardener writer in the business, which is there are plotters uh, who basically sit down and plot out all their books beat by beat, and they know the ending the minute they start the first sentence. And Flex, like every other story I've, I've written, Basically, I wrote an interesting first paragraph, and then I just sort of followed it randomly till the end of the book. Um, and what frequently happens with all my stories is that there are themes in them, but I sort of find out about them afterwards. And, you know, it's sort of like I wake up and go, oh, yeah, and then I find it kind of sharpen that. Uh, to a large extent, the magic system in Flex is driven by our reaction to uh, 9-11, you know, where something really bad happened. And yes, it really, really was bad. I mean, I'm not, you know, denigrating the uh, effects of terrorism or, you know, the Twin Towers at all. But we really overreacted in a way that wasn't helpful at all and, in fact, may have made it entirely worse for us. Um, and that's what a lot of Flex is about. Um, and, in fact, part of the thing that Paul is dealing with is uh, he could do a lot of good if channeled in the right places. But under the current circumstances, um, he's just hunted down by a lot of people. And that's why he has to find... Uh, other mansions and go on the run with them. You know, there's the Breaking Bad uh, comparison. I mean, how far do you take that? I mean, clearly there are similarities to Walter White from Breaking Bad, who becomes a, a drug dealer the way Paul go, goes into the flex-making business, and they're both doing it to, in some respects, at least Walter White initially is doing it for the well-being of his family, supposedly, to make money because mm -hmm. he thinks he's going to die. But, I mean, how far can you take that, do you think? Cause... Well, the, the interesting thing is that um, when I started writing uh, Flex, as I said, I'm a gardener. I don't really necessarily know where I'm going. And I started writing uh, Paul as basically, you know, another Walter White analog. He was kicked out of the forest because, you know, he uh, went too far. And I got about 50,000 words into the book, which, for the record, is about two-thirds of the way through a book. Um before I finally realized that uh, Paul is not Walter White. I don't like Walter. I was very addicted to Breaking Bad when I was there, but Walter was a jerk, and he was a jerk from basically episode four, where he had an opportunity to fix his family, and he went back to drug making. Um, uh, if you're familiar with MASH, basically what um, what Paul Sabo is, is he's a super-powered Raider O'Reilly. He's a super-helpful bureaucrat who really, really wants to do good in the world, and he's not really good at understanding how people work, but he's very good at understanding how paperwork works, and all he wants to do is fix things. Um, which, given how dangerous his magic is, turns out to be a constant battle where he's trying to fix things and in some cases makes them worse. Uh, and his entire struggle in the book is to try to figure out how to use his magic so he's not a hazard to the public. I like the comparison to Radar O'Reilly, who who does have a, cert, a certain magical flair for anticipating things, right? I mean, that's why he's called Radar. He kind of knows what's happening outside his direct view. Mm -hmm. And I will say that MASH has come on Netflix uh, recently. And if you've never watched it, most of the shows in the 70s don't hold up. Uh, MASH is still really brilliant on every level. And we've been we're watching it. It's like, wow, this is better than I remembered it. How often does that happen with a show that's like 50 years old? Wow, that's great. That's great. Well, yeah. I, I was thinking that about Walter White. I was thinking that he really was at his core, you know, just is revealed to be so evil as the as the series goes on. And I and I thought, you know, they weren't that the comparison really wasn't fair to Paul. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that is that I find very interesting and which people find compelling about it, because 
Yeah, what gets the attention is the magic system, because the magic system is something that people are drawn to, because the minute you hear about it, you're like, well, what kind of master would I be? And you start thinking about what magic you might do, and that's fun. But at the heart of it, Paul is a father who really, really wants to do nothing but help his daughter. And what drives the story is the fact that he's got a very burned child that he loves dearly, and he keeps getting himself deeper and deeper in because he wants to save her, he wants to keep her protected from all the bad things in the world. And yet, once the novel starts, he just has to keep going deeper and deeper to try to get to the goodness somewhere. I thought maybe now we could go on and talk a little bit about uh, your blogging, because yeah. um, that's another part of uh, your, your writing career. And I, I, I was wondering, when did you actually start uh, blogging? How did, and how did you come upon blogging? Um, well, it's, it's kind of weird, because um, when I was in college, way back in like the uh, early 1980, late 1980s, um, I thought, okay, well, I love Dave Barry. I, I love all these comedians. I'm going to write some kooky articles for the school newspaper. Um, and it turns out over the next three years in college, uh, I became like the number one, uh, draw in the Southern Connecticut, uh, school newspaper, which sounds really impressive until you realize how few people read the school newspaper. But it's a good lit- litmus test for your, your abilities to attract an audience. Right. And, you know, I would write these outrageous columns that, you know, were generally about sex or drugs or personal stuff. And that was something that you generally didn't get in the school newspaper. And so, uh, in about... 19, yeah, I would say about 1995, when the internet was first uh, up and running and I made my personal webpage, I put all of these uh, essays on the website. And then they started to attract an audience. And then LiveJournal came on and I started blogging uh, after my wife got into blogging. And it just sort of spiraled from there where, you know, basically I have this fairly large audience as a blogger. Uh, I'm not going to say it's super huge. It's not Scalzi size, John Scalzi, but... Um, I've got enough people who were willing to buy the book just because they liked my blog entries, which was really sweet and really an act of trust on everybody who did it. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I mean, and you're, you you have a very distinctive voice in your blog, and it's very different to write about yourself versus writing fiction. You know, fiction can be a mask, and you can assume lots of different personalities, but you're very revealing in your blog. And I, I wonder, you know, how it feels to be so exposed in the blog versus, you know, writing fiction. Writing fiction, there's always a shoot. And you can always say, okay, Paul did this, but he's not me. You know, or this happened in the book, but, you know, realistically, that's what had to happen. And to some extent, there's a dodge there because, you know, realistically, a book is entirely fiction. You made it up unless you're writing something that's historically accurate. If you put it in there, you want it in there. Um, But what I do with my blog is I'm very open about uh, my personal life. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I think people are attracted to it, because uh, I'm a depressive, and I write about my struggles with depression. Uh, I'm polyamorous, um, so I have a wife who I've been married to for 15 years and I love dearly, but I also date other women, and I discuss the problems involved with polyamory and relationships in general, and I talk about that. Um, I will talk about uh, my kink experiences, and I will talk about that uh, fairly explicitly uh, to anybody who asks, And the thing about that is, oh, and I'm also totally socially anxious. Um, So I'm depressive and totally socially anxious, which means every time I go to a convention, I have at least one or maybe two freakouts where I'm like, everybody in this room hates me. Um, I can play at being introvert for a while and like, I'll do this interview here and this will be great. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to watch Clone Wars for two hours and not talk to anybody. (laughs) Oh, no, I don't want that to happen. Don't do that. 
No, no, but that's that's my whole point, which is when I blog, I say, it's not you, it's me. This is the way that I have to operate. Um, it's not, you know, I am fundamentally um, insecure and anxious on some level, and this is how I've worked around it. And part of the reason that I blog is I try to share my ways for getting around so people can function normally. Um, because the truth is, you know, yeah, I'm a severe introvert. If I go out for drinks with a friend for an evening, then I need to go back home and kind of recharge in isolation for a couple of hours. But I want to talk to people, and there's a lot of people who are introverted who don't have those tools to know how to manage their time so they can go out and know when their introvert batteries are drained and get out of there in time. Um, So, yeah, a lot of my blogging consists of like, hey, here's how I'm totally screwed up on the inside. Here's how I'm functioning with it. What do you do? And that winds up being really powerful for those of us who are socially anxious or depressive or in a weird relationship or anything like that. Well, I think it's kind of amazing that, you know, the way you've described yourself and the way you describe yourself in your blog, because to be a blogger is requires to a certain extent to have a thick skin. I mean, with all the trolls out there, all the possible reactions you can get to your, you know, uh, ideas with, that some might find controversial, you know, you're not always going to get positive feedback. And yet you seem to handle that with aplomb. I mean, you 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 go forth. Yeah. And the thing about it that I've come to realize is that um, the one skill that I have that is really useful, despite all of my anxiety, um, is that I'm okay with other people disliking me as long as they dislike me for the reasons that I've stated. Um, which, let me clarify on that. It's really easy in a blog to try to say one thing and accidentally say another. You know, um, it's, it's really easy. Like at, at one point, you know, I was being snarky and sarcastic and, you know, somebody had insulted me and I said something along the lines of, well, you know, it's not like I have to worry about those people anyway. Those are idiots. I was being sarcastic and instead it felt like a slam to everybody who had ever disagreed with me in the blog and I kind of had to go and backtrack and actually say, no, I actually do value uh, dissenting opinions. I want to hear them. I just screwed up really badly. And that's the danger of blogging. But if I have said what I meant to say, and I have said my opinion in a way that I've thought it through enough that I'm willing to stand behind it, then I am willing to take um, the anger from other people. And what I have found generally is if you are willing to be okay with uh, dealing with dissenting opinions and dealing with everybody not loving you, you can actually wind up doing fairly well out there on the internet um, up to a certain extent. The minute you start getting audience sizes of like 50,000 or 100,000 or uh, Anita Sarkeesian um style audiences, you're going to get trolls and you're going to have to get a thicker skin. But at my nice little, you know, 5,000 people reading me level, I can do okay. Good advice for people out there not to uh, not to be too fearful about putting your neck out uh, if you feel like you have something important to say. Uh, and do you want to talk a little bit about the Good Men Project, which is one of the, one of the uh, locations that you're, well, that's where uh, many of your, much of your writing appears. Yeah, I haven't written for them in a while, and that's just because I've been very busy with the novel and trying to get that out. Uh, but the Good Men Project is a project they're, they're trying to promote um, sex-positive, feminist-positive masculinity, for lack, of, for lack of a better term. Um, and that's where I had, uh, I had one essay that went super viral. I've had a couple others that have gone viral on a minor level, but the book, uh, the, the essay that went viral on a huge level with literally a million people reading it, which let me tell you is intense, um, was called Dear Daughter, I Hope You Have Awesome Sex, which was um, published over on the Good Men Project. 
And that was that one took off like no tomorrow. It was really, really weird. Uh, and if you've never read it, basically I say that, you know, I read an article by a shotgun dad. He's like, if you show up and you want to date my daughter, I'm going to like pound you into the sand. And I was like, no, I want my kids to have good sex. I want them to have it well. I want them to enjoy themselves. I don't want to know the details. But I think if I was the kind of dad who was trying to wall them off from all the experiences that I personally enjoy, I would be a crappy dad. Um, and that one really, really took off. So Yeah, well, I, and I did read it, and I thought it was delightful because it was so such a break with um, what one would expect, sort of the sitcom dad who's sort of horrified by the whatever guy his daughter brings home. And um, mm-hmm. and your yours was sort of much more refreshing and realistic and sex positive, but like people positive, you know, like ex- go, child positive, go explore the world, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that you really get down to in a lot of cases with, um, with parenting is, is that a lot of it is actually just terror that your child is going to do the wrong thing. And the one thing that I've told my daughters time and time again, um, it's like, look, I want you to do what I want you to do. That would be nice. But honestly, if you did everything that made me happy, then you would just be kind of a sad clone of me and who would have never discovered like what made you happy. So you're going to piss me off from time to time and you're going to piss me off really, really severely. Um, but if you do that and not all the time, that means you're probably learning how to make yourself happy. And I support that. And I mean, I guess uh, maybe it's stating the obvious, but flex does involve uh, the relationship of a father with a daughter. And I wonder if at least from an emotional perspective, you were drawing from your own experiences uh, as a parent, if, if if not your literal experiences as a mancer. Yeah, no, I, well, I am obsessed enough to spend 30 years writing with no real <laughs> reward to show for it. But, um, so yeah, the, the novel is reflective of my own personal, just keep trying until you, you get there. Um, but yeah, no, the, the father daughter relationship is something that people have reacted, uh, very strongly to, um, and I'm glad to see that they're saying it feels real um, because the thing about uh, Paul, like I said, he loves his kid and yet he can't shield her from the uglinesses of life. Uh, you know, when it starts out, like I said, she gets burned. She has uh, severely burned an apartment fire. That is not Paul's fault, but he makes it worse with his magic um, in trying to rescue her. And, you know, basically everything he does is for love and the actual book which I'm kind of intrigued by because this is something somebody pointed out to me after the fact. Again, you never know the themes until you're out there. Somebody pointed out is that the book is a gender inverted take on the old question. Can a woman have a job and a child and really have it all? And in fact, the the question for Paul is, can he have this magic, this magic, which is really harmful and dangerous and he loves with all of his heart and can he still manage to be a good father to his daughter, who he also loves? And that is the central struggle of the book, which really is expressed in how I tried to parent my kids. Fascinating. Flex is a standalone book, is that correct? Or Because I think it's unusual. So many people write series now. Not everyone, of course. But did you have anything further in mind, or it was meant to be a one-off? Well, it was it was meant to be a one-off, but um, there's at least one more story in it because they're publishing the sequel in October. Um, but it's it's not really as it's a series, but they're all independent books per se. Because the one thing I hate about series is when books don't feel complete in and of their own. So Flex, you can read that as a one-off. Uh, Flux, the sequel, is about what happens uh, later on as a result of some of the events that happen at the end of Flex. 
no spoilers. Um, and that's due out in October. Um, and there's talk of maybe a third book. We'll see if that works out because I have an idea for that. And then after that, I'm out of ideas. So we'll see what happens. Well, if you use the name Flex and Flux, what could the third title possibly be? Um, okay, well, full disclosure, um, I wrote the second book in isolation before the first book came out. And as it turns out, all anybody wants to know about is what happened in Europe. And I'm like, well, I don't really address that in the second book. They're like, well, why not? And I'm like, oh, well, I should probably get around to that. And I do have some ideas as to what's happening. So the third book, if Angry Robot picks it up, which cross fingers, I hope to hear about that soon, uh, will be called Fix. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and you will get sales in Europe then because it'll be all about Europe. Right. They'll be happy that I'm, I'm making things up to them. Yeah, and it's called Fix. They'll like the name, you know? Mm-hmm. Of course, maybe they don't think they need fixing. Well, you know, after they read what's happening over there in my world, they'll probably think they do. Very good. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me today. All right. Thanks for having me on. This was great. I loved it. Well, I have been talking with Ferret Steinmetz, the author of Flex, which came out in March, and the sequel will be out in October. And keep your fingers crossed, there may be a third book on the horizon, although that has not yet been determined. To find out more about uh, what Ferret's up to and his blog, do you want to share your um, your your web address? Yes. Uh, my name is spelled unusually. It's Ferret with two R's and two T's. Uh, that's a result of being on bulletin boards where you couldn't reserve normal names. Um, so it's I'm at www.the. F-E-R-R-E-T-T dot com. The ferret dot com. And if you want to catch me on Twitter, I'm ferret, two R's, two T's himself. Ferret himself. Perfect. So to find out more about our podcasts and listen to other podcasts, visit our website at www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a review. You can subscribe. I'm sure there's a myriad other ways to subscribe to podcasts, so you could go forth and look for those as well. Uh, and if you want to get one, listen to the camera and Hurley one, because she's always great and she was on here too. So just saying. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes, she is a riot. So listen to, listen to Cameron Hurley and listen to everyone else too while you're there. So thank you so much for listening. And our logo is by Michael Thibodeau, and our theme music is by Michael Aaron, and the editor of the New Books Network is Marshall. And you can find me on Twitter as well at Rob Wolf Books. And you can find uh, New Books and Science Fiction on Twitter too at New Books Sci Fi. Thank you very much for listening.